Hi, welcome. I'm here with Rodney Evans. She is partner at The Ready and the host of the Brave New Work podcast. Rodney, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. I, I'm really excited to talk with you for a host of reasons, and we're going to highlight that right at the outset. If you would, for those who don't know you, please share a little bit about uh, who you are and uh, what you do. Absolutely. So uh, I am a recovering people leader, an HR professional. I started out in a very traditional career in big consulting and investment banking, sort of developed some allergies to bureaucracy and big institutions over the course of about a decade. And then um, and, and left it all, left New York, left my job, traveled around the world for a while, and kind of fell backwards into the future of work. And for about the last 10 years, have been working in and around organizations, large and small, to re really help them transform their ways of working to make things more adaptive, to make things more human, to make things less miserable for those of us who find ourselves working all the time. Um, and yeah, I do I do some of that work uh, through my podcast and, and others through my work uh, with The Ready. Well, again, thanks for being here. And you mentioned the future of work, and you obviously mentioned your allergy to bureaucracy and, and all that entailed, because I have long shared that we grew up in what I call the suck-it-up generation. It's just, you're lucky to have a job. Just deal with it. And you have kind of railing against that. Yeah, so what, you know, what do you see in terms of you know, the future of work? You know, why do you think we need to shift things? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. A lot of us grew up in organizations that sort of said the way that it's always been is the way it should be. The system knows best. Basically kind of like shut up in color, you know, yeah. <laughs> and that the way to live your life is just to climb this ladder and the trappings of that ladder are the purpose of work. And and I think what, what we know now, because we're seeing the institutions and organizations that we grew up in and around failing and, and, and collapsing under their own weight, is that the industrial age model isn't serving us well. You know, many of us are not factory floor workers. We are knowledge workers. We're working in a global economy that is uh, technology enabled in a way that it was not, you know, 50 or 100 years ago. And that requires different things. You know, if we want people to create and think and adapt and be nimble and shift, we can't have them working in organizations that are full of sludge and where so much of our time and our mental space is just used to navigate the mm. system around us rather than doing the best and most important work that we could be doing. Yeah, I, I love what you're sharing so much, and I'm sure uh, those listening do as well. I, I think the problem is well documented, well understood insofar as that people feel it's not right. However, we wake up the next day and we go and do the same thing. And so my pointed question is, why aren't things changing? And I frankly thought with COVID and, you know, remote work that things, you know, would shift for the better. Um, yet we have the great resignation or great shift or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I don't see personally many leaders taking a courageous enough, courageous enough position on this. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pickle, right? Because we're, we're in sort of this limbo between where we're headed and where we've been. And mm -hmm. for a lot of leaders in organizations, it's quite risky to think differently and to lead differently. Mm. Um, you know, the kind of work that I do is very focused on self-management. And a lot of people hear self-management and I know it has a lot of like buzziness and it has a lot of stigma around it. And they think that means chaos and no bosses. And you know, we're all just like hippies who braid each other's hair all day. But, <laughs> but really what we mean by self-management is is, is leadership of work and leadership of roles and not just a calcified pyramid where one or a few people sort of hoard the power and stay at the top. And the reason that I say that is because when you ask why aren't more leaders changing and transforming, if you're a leader who has 10 or 40 years of experience getting to the top of that pyramid and it's all you know, and it's the way that you were taught to manage and that those who came before you led you. It feels very risky to start giving power away mm -hmm. or to start um, 
looking to the people who are closer to the edge of your business or closer to the customer and really listening to their ideas or to admit that, you know, you're not necessarily the person in the room who knows the most and that Mm -hmm. specialization and good ideas can come from other places than the top. So I think we're asking a lot of people who um, have been socialized through education and family structures and working structures from internships on to the pyramid to start thinking differently about these things. Mm -hmm. And yet that's what the world is demanding of us. So, you know, it doesn't work super well in a pandemic or in a supply chain crisis or in the great resignation for one person to be trying to control everything happening in a huge complex organization. And I think most of the leaders that I work with, and I imagine this is true for you, they're having the experience of how difficult it is, but Mm -hmm. what would be required to get out of it also feels quite scary and quite threatening. It, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and then it invites the question, you know, what to do. Okay. You know, there's this conditioning that you just spoke of. of like, okay, we understand why we're here. Yet we understand also that high value talent has a high propensity to bail if things aren't suiting them. And you know, that is becoming more and more the case, uh, particularly in you know nursing and engineering and places where they got options right they you know they, they can go so you know what to do at the end of the day you know what would you recommend leaders shift or what do they got to do differently to respond appropriately to the workforce of the day particularly high value talent that has options yeah so i think for starters there's just an awareness Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that leaders who are expecting that they are going to command and control their way through complexity have to stop fooling themselves because Mm -hmm. they're not. I think the people who are waiting for things to go back to normal, quote unquote normal, or back to another time have to get out of that mindset. Mm -hmm. And then the other big mindset shift, and then we can talk a little bit about some more tactical things. But I think the big mindset shift that I run into a lot is if you know that the way that you've always done it isn't working, you can't also undermine a way that feels unfamiliar to you. Hmm. And I run into that thing a lot where people are like, well, I know that I know that right now we're stuck and people are leaving or people aren't performing or we're not shipping fast enough or our stock price is tanking or whatever. But when we start talking about what real alternatives look like, they're like, ugh, <laughs> no, not that. Right. So, so I think there's sort of this awareness piece of it that we have to get square with and we have to be open with really trying something new. And, and then from there, you know, one of the big mis- – it's hard to call it a mistake, but one of the big trends that I see, you know, when you talk about – talent having options in most fields right now, you know, from cashiers to software engineers, everybody uh, is in demand who is a talented resource. And the trap that I see leaders falling into is I'm going to figure out how to change things so that people stay. And my argument would be, instead of doing that, create an organization where people have the freedom to make to make their own decisions about what's important. And I'll give you a really easy example of that. I just had a conversation an hour ago with a former client, very senior person at a very large organization. They're trying to figure out the hybrid work puzzle. They're getting data, they're doing surveys. What do people want? These people want to be home. These people want two days a week. These people want blah, blah, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's the full gamut. And my point is, if you are going to hold the authority and make the decisions for people, you've already lost the battle. Mm. The way that you are going to engage this generation of workers, by which I really mean everybody who's in the workforce, is by giving them flexibility, giving them options, saying at the team level, you decide how many days a week you're in the office, what your operating cadence is, what your tool stack is. Because again, in in this in a large complex system where things are changing as quickly as they are, as a leader, you're never gonna get it right. And you're never gonna get it right for everyone. Mm-hmm. So how much freedom and how much agency can you give these smart and talented people to design their own workplace? Uh, I... I love what you just shared. Uh, as someone who 
lives on this balance like you do, you know, advocating for the worker and also understanding a business needs to do what it does and make money and, and you know, add value to its shareholder, all that. It also needs to humanize the corporate experience, and that's going to require, you know, this flexibility that you and openness that you're talking to, and understanding that job families and you know are overlaid with life stages, which are you know different for people all over. So if we don't have this ability to make our own decisions, then we're going to feel unheard and alienated, arguably. So with that, let's say, take that as a you know, broad understanding. Mm -hmm. How then do organizations formulate these strategies systematically over time? Because it's one thing for a leader, okay, this is what we should do. But how then, you know, do we do it given all the moving pieces from IT to facilities to, you know, HR? I mean, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. The bigger the system, the more I think it has to be done fractally. Hmm. So getting out of this mindset that at a system level, we're going to figure out the right org structure or the right tool stack or the right hybrid work for for every single, for all of our 10,000 or 100,000 employees, like that's just madness. Mm. So to me, the question is, how much authority can you give at the unit of people who actually do work together? Mm. And I mean like really the people who are interdependent. So what that probably looks like is a team that is organized around a product or around a service, whether that is IT providing a service to internal clients or a, an engineering pod that is actually shipping updates to an application. And how much authority can you push to that to that level, to that yeah. fractal level to say, okay, within a team of, you know, probably fewer than 15 humans, how much agency do they have to decide where they work, when they work, what tools they use, how they clarify roles, how they make changes to their own rules. And look, I know there are gonna be non-negotiables. I work mostly with Fortune 500 companies. So I know that like, it's not like if you're a pharmaceutical company and you're dealing with regulators, every team can just like, you know, deal with the regulators or not. There are obviously going to be these standards inside of big organizations that aren't negotiable. But I think the mistake that big companies make, and this is true from investment banks to pharmaceuticals, is saying, everything has to be a standard. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's just not really true. There mm -hmm. are things that have to be standards. And then there are a lot of things that don't. And maybe, you know, maybe teams can design their own vacation policies. I've worked in places where at the team level, we figured out how to, how to distribute our bonuses. And it looked different than how other teams distributed their bonuses. So, mm -hmm. The range of tolerance is going to be different inside different systems, and I don't think anybody can go to this more like self-managed, more adaptive way overnight. But the mental model is how much how much authority can you give to mm -hmm. to the unit of work that is people, sh you know, sharing work and interdependent, and then where can you let them play? Where can you let them say this is the thing that's really holding our team back, and this is the experiment that we'd like to run? So. You know, leaders have to let go in that scenario, right? Totally. They have to, to your point, you know, uh, embrace new ways of doing things. And that doing might be not doing, <laughs> not making decisions for everyone and providing frameworks to work within as opposed to, you know, hard and fast dictums that say, oh, you got to do that. And, and what you said about, uh, you know, policies or vacation policies, you know, at the team level. And it made me think about as a worker, who am I most connected with, you know, to, you know, what makes me stay here? Is it the company and the brand? Yeah, that's a factor, but I would think it's the relationships I have with my team, with my manager, with, you know, those that I work with, you know, day to day. And if we can uh, work literally get on the same page as opposed to walk around uh, or be on you know, calls and kind of complain about the, the, the monster that is, you know, creating all these policies and we take ownership of it. I, I think the level of engagement, uh, particularly with hybrid work would, you know, be elevated. So then this invites the question and we touched on it before, but I'd like you to go a little bit you know, deeper. 
let's say everyone's nodding their head who's listening. Like, I agree, I agree, I agree. You know, and we agree too that leaders need to let go. How does that happen? Like, I want to understand from a policy systematic, because you, you're an org designer and you're also a leadership coach. And, you know, the individual change versus the, or in, in, in complement of, rather, the systematic change. So how does the systematic change happen in, again, over time? Because I just see not everyone being on the same page right now. You know, there are a lot of head nods, but the action behind it isn't there. So where does that shift have to happen? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and it's one that most people embarking on some kind of evolutionary journey have. Mm -hmm. So I think that this kind of journey, a transformational journey, if you're a leader, usually starts with a leadership team looking at what's holding it back. And it's interesting when you get any small group of people into a room and you don't do it from a perspective of being critical or being judgmental or blaming someone. And it's just like, look, if we could make, if we could wave a magic wand as a leadership team or as a C-suite, like what would be different about our working lives? Usually some stuff comes up and usually we can agree on a couple of things. We call those tensions. We call those like tensions in the operating system, whether that's about comp or it's about tools or it's about strategy or it's about how we budget or how we hire. Usually there's some stuff brewing in the operating system that's like not our favorite thing on earth. If we can, if we can coalesce around a tension, then the question is just what could we try? What's an experiment that we could run for eight weeks? And this is where some of the magic is because the old way of doing this work, the very change management-y traditional way is we'll understand what all the problems are and we'll make a plan to rectify all the problems. And then on our project plan and through a lot of disciplined communication and winning hearts and minds, we'll fix the problems. It doesn't work because that's just more command and control. You know, that's more yelling at the wind. You got to stop <laughs> doing that. So it's like, what's a small move that we could try? If we feel like, you know, one that comes up a lot for us is around meetings. Most, most of us are in meetings way too many hours a week. We get a leadership to get team together. We often hear, we meet a lot, but we're not really sure we're talking about the most important things. Great. What's an experiment we could run in our operating rhythm of meetings? Could we try doing a monthly retrospective? Could we try a different kind of weekly meeting where we all bring agenda items? Could we try a participatory decision-making process? These are just things that we try. Usually the answer to that is yes. We, we're not going to make a plan. There's no change management plan. There's no communications plan. There's attention with our meetings. There's an experiment we're going to try for eight weeks to do new kinds of meetings. And at the end of that, we're going to see what it gets us. Hmm. And the truth of working in a complex system is you never really know what it's going to get you. So sometimes we just get a better meeting. A lot of times what we get is a realization of what another tension is. So mm. a lot of times when we sort out our meetings and now we feel like we're talking about the right thing, we realize that, oh, maybe we're actually a little misaligned on what our strategy is. Okay, well, what's an experiment we could run around our strategy? Maybe rather than having a three-year plan, we create something, you know, we pull a lot from Greg McEwen's essentialism, big fan of Greg's, you know, maybe rather than that as a leadership team, we're creating a one-year kind of essential intent statement. Let's try that. Let's see how that works as an experiment. And so on and so on. And, and maybe what we learned from that experiment is now we know what the strategy is, but we're actually not resourcing it correctly. This is how we sort of move around a complex system, noticing what's, what's off, what's holding us back, what's keeping us up, what we're complaining about, figuring out what we could try, knowing that every experiment is not going to be a winner, but we should learn from all of them. And then trying what's next rather than trying to plan our way through change. Yeah, I like what you're saying so much. And it also highlights the fact that this requires two things. It requires time. So getting a leadership together to focus on this challenge. And it takes a framework, a, a way of organizing that time to achieve a certain outcome. Are you seeing organizations allocating enough time? And do you see them having a disciplined framework that helps them learn 
at speed and at scale over time? Not as often as I'd like. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of knew the answer before I asked it, obviously. Uh, But then again, it invites the question, why not? You know, should they not, leadership teams, that is, be allocating more time? And this is truly important. And it is. I don't think anyone's going to argue with that. I believe more time and effort and systematic uh, approaches need to be em- employed. Uh, number one, would you agree with that? And if so, in addition to what you shared earlier, you know, what does some of that space and time look like? Yeah, I of course I totally agree with you. Um, a, a couple things come to mind. One is often it's not actually more time; it's using time differently. Hmm. So. How many leadership teams have you seen that spend six months on budgeting in August for the next year? They know the budget is a lie. They know by December that it's not going to happen for the coming year. And yet they'll spend six weeks in meetings, three hours a week, creating this budget that everyone knows is nonsense. Mm. Okay, cool. That's a lot of time. What if we used that time? differently. You know, mm-hmm. often if you if we really look at a leadership team's calendar, it's not that the time spent together isn't there, it's that it's spent on updating each other on information, it's spent mm-hmm. on push of information. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not often spent on really doing work together. Mm-hmm. So I just want to take the pool of time that they already have invested in things that aren't really serving them and reinvest it in more ways of working, less making plans and updating each other and statusing on the plans, more launching experiments, learning and retrospecting, sensing what's next and launching the next experiment. But two things happen when you start doing that. One is it feels so different that they think they're not doing work, which always makes me laugh because I'm like, it's just because it's not painful that it doesn't feel like work. We're actually doing something really productive. And two is, and, and I imagine you've seen this in your work too, there's a little bit of like go slow to go fast. When we're mm-hmm. learning something new and we're learning a new way, say, of having meetings or of steering our strategy or of doing our budgeting, the first rep, the first three reps of as a group, it does go slower because we're like developing a new muscle that we didn't have before and we're all very accustomed at a leadership level to sitting back and listening to somebody who has a 50 slide powerpoint just tell us stuff and this feels very different to be in conversation with people going what's the tension that we're holding what are we going to try let's design an experiment like that takes some learning Mm -hmm. and so um so i think some of the investment in time is reallocation some of the investment is learning and some of it is just knowing that it's necessary and just being like, you know what, things aren't working the way they are and it's worth it to us to think about the how of work. And that's an important part of our jobs, even if we haven't historically. Uh, gosh, you're getting me all excited. <laughs> just, I, I, I love what you're saying. And I've said that now for third, fourth, fifth time. <laughs> um, and I, I mean it sincerely because I think there needs to be more voices and more acceptance of the fact that we need more time and space allocated. And there's a lot of play being given to employee experience design, employee listening, all fine and good. However, it has to be... Uh, Leadership teams have to be on the same page. I'm not talking about only HR, uh, but facilities, IT, uh, operations, you know, on, on down the line. And if they don't have a common framework, a common set of experiences that are a common process, rather, that helps keep them on the same page, then you know, there's going to be inefficiencies uh, and sometimes just, you know, direct, you know, conflict. And I love your focus on, you know, these tensions. Some, correct me if I'm wrong, tensions are healthy and some, you know, are are unhealthy. So I want to ask about employee listening and employee experience design. And, and there's language around, of course, culture and return to workplace. So there's all these initiatives and, and language. You know, what do you advocate be kind of the North Star here? You know, is it culture? Is it employee experience? You know, what, what would you like to see as a, a naming convention? Not to say that there's one right answer. It's just what resonates with you in terms of, you know, a lead uh, initiative, if you will. Mm. 
Well, that's a tricky question for me because, <laughs> and, and I'll tell you why. I fundamentally don't think that that work should be an initiative. Mm-hmm. I think that our ways of working and our experience as employees in a in an institution are largely formed by the day to day. It they're formed by the interaction that we have with the environment around us, whether that's, you know, my boss gets mad if I'm five minutes late or whether that's the expense system is really hard to navigate and I have to submit a receipt for $2, even though I'm making a quarter of a million dollars a year or whatever, Mm -hmm. like all of those little things that we experience, that is the culture of the Mm -hmm. organization. And so I get sort of suspicious when it's like, Oh, we're going to go, we're going to go like over here and listen and like do work for the employee experience. I'm like, what about, in terms of, you know, what decisions can they make? What authority do they have to spend? How much flexibility do they have to structure their work? How, like, to me, that's where you get at the best employee experiences by creating an environment where employees can do the best work of their lives. And no, no different to doing equity and diversity work. I just don't think it can be an extracurricular. Like I think it has to be woven into the operating system. So whatever we're after, whether it's participation or it's innovation or it's whatever the buzzword is of the company, I want to know how is that informing your meeting design? How is that informing your strategy? How is that informing where you allocate resources? How mm-hmm. is that informing your hiring process? Because if if you know what your principles are and they're not showing up in your practices all over the place, you're not going to initiative your way out of it. So I that's I mean maybe that's a controversial take. I mean, I would be curious like your read on that because you're in this space and doing this work too. I'm smiling because I agree. And the impetus for the question is something that you touched on, is many organizations have diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. They have engagement initiatives. They have retention initiatives, you know, talent acquisition, onboarding, and they're oftentimes disjointed. And so how then do you bring them together to create a cohesive experience that addresses all those challenges, uh, you know, those needs. Yeah, we, we want a more inclusive environment where people feel that they belong and they feel safe psychologically, emotionally, physically, and otherwise. It's like, great, that does, you know, the talent acquisition process can affect that. You know, the means in which we communicate internally um, can affect that. Is that, however, the way an organization looks at it? You know, is it kind of a siloed, oh, we're just gonna do this? So. I love what you said. It's like, how is work getting done? And how do people, you know, connect day to day? You know, what resources do they have? And can we as an organization supply those resources and guidelines, frameworks, whatever, and monitor and learn, you know, at speed, at scale, you know, over time? Uh, I just, unfortunately, uh, even with COVID and the aftermath, I don't see it happening enough. And I am fearful that the inertia of the past is just dragging us. You just is too heavy of an anchor. So, some have broken free, but others are just kind of trying to, you know, mull through it kind of confused. At least that's my, you know, observation. So, you know, going back to you and in, in your work, you know, what is the shift? Like, okay, again, I think we've had a great discussion thus far, and I'm loving where we're landing on a systematic level. But I'm thinking about the individual worker now for a second, because I know you talked about at the outset about your experience. And yeah. I think like me, you're an advocate of the worker. And we have data that shows that people are working longer, the meetings are shorter, and they barely have enough time to actually do work during the course of the day. And now that goes into their personal time, quote unquote, and it's affecting their relationships, their, their health and, and so forth. So what do you think the role of the individual is in, in all this and setting boundaries and, and uh, advocating for themselves? Yeah, it's a really important question. And I find it, I find it tricky because I sort of feel like saying to an individual who's like, 
burnt out or overworked or unhappy or whatever that they need to like set boundaries is sort of to me the mirror of saying leaders need to figure it out it's like we can't just rely on individual action at at either end of the spectrum to me the magic is in where are the conversations happening and how are they happening that inform the changes to the system so i think that's where the individual thing comes into play and um i like uh you know, because we started talking about DEI, I read about a company and I wish that I could remember who it was during the pandemic when, you know, violence against Asian Americans was peaking in the U.S. in a lot of major cities. And as part of, you know, there was a a DEI team or specialist inside of this organization and, and they were reaching out to their Asian American employees and just saying, what do you need? And the needs that came back from several members of that population was rides to work so that they didn't have to go on public transportation. And so a practice was put into place by the company that said, you know, whether it was a reimbursement or it was just, you know, transit tickets or whatever the thing was, this is the need expressed by the individual. And what we are going to do as a system is meet that need. Not say, you know, we're going to like, have speakers and make posters and tell Asian American employees like ha- that we're here for them. We're going to ask ask the adults what the adults need in order to be safe and do their work. And then if we can, we're going to give it to them. And that's really what I'm looking for is like I'm looking for the system or the leaders to be getting the data from their employees and then and then to the extent possible, creating a menu of options. And the employee's responsibility in that is when asked, think about what the needs are. Don't fall into the trap of, I'm just going to complain and hope someone figures it out. And I don't think that people do that intentionally, but I do think that a lot of us were socialized to that, where it's like when somebody asks you how things are going, you're just like, everything sucks. It all sucks. My boss sucks. It just sucks. Somebody should do Somebody should do something about this. It's like as much as we want the leaders to let go, we want the employees to step in and say, I'm responsible for my own working experience. And if somebody asks me what I need to do my best work, I'm going to know and I'm going to say it and I'm going to like lean into being part of the experiment so that we all feel, you know, what, what I what I ultimately want is for the collective of people, regardless of the power structure, to feel responsible for our environment, for our work, for each other. And And I think the way that we do that is not paternalistic. I think the way we do that is by asking people what they need and getting it for them and then assuming that they will do their best work. <laughs> Well, I mean, what you are talking about is opening up a channel of communication. So you're actually in, being heard as a worker and yes. you're trusting that there's going to be a quick and appropriate response. So I've long shared a, people after their basics want to be seen, heard and empowered. And that story highlights that it's like, OK, I'm I've seen I'm struggling. I don't feel safe. You know, here's my idea. And OK, you're going to put it in place and you do that you know, quickly and at scale. Then I would think that the engagement of those employees in that story, you know, elevated. It's like, okay, they're doing their part, you know, and that's, but I've had to advocate for myself and I had to have the channel to advocate for myself. So yeah, I, I love the story. I'm also saddened by the story that that was required. Um, and, and maybe it's, it's still in place. Um, now there's a couple of things I want to talk about in the balance of our time. Uh, number one is your podcast and the impetus thereof and what that's all about. And a related question is, as we go into the future, the future of work is uh, something certainly we've touched on, but I'm interested in what are some of the themes that you see uh, emerging. Um, I have my own, and I don't want to bias your response, but before we get to that, uh, your podcast, what was the impetus for it, and you know, what voices are you getting out there, and what are you trying to achieve with it? Yeah, thanks for asking. So um, my... Uh podcast co-host Aaron Dignan was the founder of The Ready. He also wrote the book Brave New Work. And and the impetus was really twofold. If I'm being totally honest, is that we really like talking to each other and we sort of crack each other up and we're just nerds about this stuff. (laughs) Like we're very passionate about org design and what we do. 
We like to talk about it. And what we found was that people liked listening to us talk about it in rooms or on retreats or during offsites that often there were sort of folks like, you know, sort of wandering around and being like, you know, sort of sort of laughing in the background as he and I were chatting. And so we just thought we, we should make a podcast. And so we started that a while ago. I think we're in about our 100th episode. And then the wow. other thing that's like a little bit more, um, you know, lofty, I would say, is we're we're a small company. There's a lot of need in the world, in organizations for modernization, for new ways of working. And we can't service them all and they can't all engage us for a variety of reasons, whether that's readiness, whether that's budget, whether that's location, whatever the thing is. And so we were like, our, our sort of first principle for the podcast was, how can we get real tools into people's hands? Hmm. And so some of our podcast episodes are very nitty gritty. Like we did an entire episode dedicated to how to change your weekly status meeting into a participatory meeting. Hmm. Now, for a lot of people, that sounds like a dental appointment, but most of us have a weekly team meeting and most of us don't really like it. Mm -hmm. And the ready can't be everywhere, changing everybody's team meeting all over the world every single week. So like we try to make podcast episodes that are a mix of people who inspire us. Um, and we have, you know, we've had amazing people on our podcast from um, Cass Sunstein was there last week. Kevin Kelly has been on a couple of times, like just people in the world who are doing cool stuff and thinking big thoughts. And then also really tactical stuff like, you know, don't do another reorg, do this instead. Or like, this is how you launch an experiment. Or like, this is how you make a decision in a way that's participatory. Or whatever a, a real way of working is that a team could grab a hold of and try. Yeah, well, it's it's needed. I've, um, I heard, ironically, in a podcast <laughs> recently, um, that, and I forgive me for not uh, remembering the guest, but the value of stories in inspiring change. And as I heard it, it was, uh, of course, <laughs> you know, because uh, Stephen Pinker's, you know, Harvard psychologist talks about stories as the building blocks of thought. It, it's it's not words, it's not paragraphs, sentence structure. It's, it's actually story. That's what sticks, that's what resonates, that's what creates emotional responses. And, you know, we need uh, channels by which to tell the stories of the worker. And I would, for one, love to see organizations have their internal podcasts to elevate yes. the voice of their workers and the stories, you know, in there. Because uh, it's one thing for us as podcasters to you know, share stories and, um, you know, grateful for every listener, uh, you know, current and in the future. And at the same time, when you're listening to a family member, you know, and you hear their experience, that's going to be, you know, visceral because that's someone that you can affect. So I would hope as we move through time that organizations themselves, you know, create these platforms to, you know, elevate stories. So that for me is part of the future. And so my pointed question to you, this whole notion of future of of work and you know brave new work you know the the book and your your podcast how do you define that where do you sense you know we're going what, what are some of the risks and opportunities ahead yeah uh it's exciting i mean in so many ways the pandemic and everything related to it feels to me like it brought the future into the present and i i sort of jokingly say you know I've been doing this for a long time. And five years ago, I think the first three months were just sort of convincing people that complexity was real and that they weren't going to be able to plan their way through it. Now, whether it's the supply chain issue or the pandemic or hybrid work or, or whatever, people like they get it. They're just like, oh, yeah. Oh, this is really hard. So I think that um, if you if we if we all just sort of key into what's happening now, it's going to be more of this. It's mm -hmm. more unpredictability. It's more reliance on technology. It's more distribution um, physically, whether that's, you know, within the U.S. or working on global teams. Um, it's it's more changes in terms of the Internet landscape. You know, we're very interested in Web3 and in DAOs and in what's happening in that space. Um, you know, I'm I'm very um 
I'm very engaged in what's going on there because at a principles level, it's so aligned with self-management and with self-organization. And and at a practical level, you know, we see the downsides of a few large platforms controlling the vast majority of our interactions and seeing something where the people who are contributing to making something are also the owners of it. So mm. I'm like in terms of sort of the vectors of the future, I, I I do think that crypto and Web3 are where we're headed. And I certainly think, um, you know, I think I think what we're seeing in terms of the worker population and their demands for more representation, you know, the fact that we are seeing this movement toward unionization, I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I think what's under that from a principles perspective is people want options, they want agency, and they're tired of working totally under the control and at the whim of a system that they don't really get to participate in. Mm -hmm. And so whether you're looking at that from like a sociological perspective or from a technological perspective, I think the trend is the same, which is more people who want to be engaged in and participating in and owning the thing that they're contributing their thoughts and their hours and their time and their working life to. Well, we're just meeting and I have to say, I'm a huge fan of you and what you're advocating and what you're putting out in the world. Cause I couldn't agree more. Um, and the way you're talking about this, I think is as important as what you're saying. And, and let me explain and I'll, I'll turn it back to, to a question is that you're using terms like agency and tension and you know, systems and you know, work design. And that is something that uh, there's this arguably this victim mentality that's been out there, uh, both from a citizenry um, here in the United States, as well as, a, you know, a worker. It's like, oh, it's this, this sucks, this is this, this and that. It's like, no, we have to step forward and advocate for ourselves, advocate, you know, for what we want. There are appropriate ways to do that. There are inappropriate ways to do that. Um, sometimes it requires a push against legacy ways of doing things. And that's yes. where attention, you know, you know, comes up and, you know, tensions are going to be increasing um, over time, arguably, I would say that that they are. Um, and so guy, I have, this is a whole line that we can do another podcast on, on this particular theme. Um, I'm, sh I'm sure. But in terms of the, the future of work and, and inclusion and these tensions, uh, the metaverse is now getting a lot of play. And I don't know, know if you've read the book Ready Player One, uh, but it's I a fantastic very much on my list. <laughs> it's a fantastic read. Um, I think given where we are in time, uh, it's a must read for anybody. I mean, literally anybody. Um, it's entertaining. Um, it is, uh, the, don't even get me started on the movie, but um, I'm bringing this up for this reason is that I think we're going there much faster than I mm. would want to believe. You talk about Web 3.0. Uh, we also have this you know, need for inclusion, need to be seen, all that. Um, so as we shift the way we work and how we interact, do you see us collaborating like we are right now, albeit in a two-dimensional virtual thing, but if we're in a three-dimensional environment and we're able to kind of move ourselves, so to speak, as avatars, you know, that's not that far away. And so what are your just, as I share this, you know, what comes to mind for you? Is, is this going to be a good thing and not a good thing? I mean, it, arguably it's just imminent, but, you know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean... I think it's exciting. I, 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 so look, I'm not, I'm not someone who thinks that like humans are, are going to evolve past collaboration for a very long time. You know, we, we are social, we are pack animals. We are, we are wired to be social and to cooperate. Um, it is our evolutionary imperative to do so. So I don't think that we're, um, you know, even though in some ways we're becoming more individualistic and more isolated, in other ways, technology is connecting us in ways it never has before. I do think that the ability to share physical space um, is very exciting. And I think, you know, particularly as we see people, um, you know, as we see the population shift, like, you know, the pandemic has done 
an amazing and surprising things in terms of moving people out of major cities and and creating major cities that didn't exist before and moving to rural areas and 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 even though a lot of the a lot of the uh sort of virtual reality it still feels like you know early there is a real feeling of presence. And, you know, my, my husband works out every day using an Oculus. We held part of our retreat during the pandemic in Oculus space together as a company. Um, you know, I think as we have more team members who are working not co-located, and, and maybe that's maybe that's internationally or maybe they just left San Francisco during the pandemic, I think having that as a tool in the toolkit is going to be incredibly helpful. My my oh my prevailing sense is just that like we've sort of shaken up all of the puzzle pieces and we kind of have to put the puzzle back together in a different way. And mm. I think what that looks like is like we're going to come together and be in physical space for specific important moments, not just as our default 40 hours a week. Hopefully we're going to use technology to be in virtual space together more. Um, and I, I think it creates some really interesting opportunities and you know as someone who has lived mostly on zoom for the last 18 months it's a nice break like it's you know it's nice to to have a meeting um using the oculus where we're playing ping pong rather than just staring into our cameras at each other for another (laughs) hour so so i don't know i think it's exciting i mean i'd be curious for your take as well on um on on all of that and where we're headed yeah i i have for reasons that you decided i'm excited, hopeful. Uh, I'm not doom and gloom on it. I do wonder what is going to happen, how it's going to affect us socially um, over time, uh, particularly young people. Uh, Yeah, it's just a curiosity. I think there's going to be benefits. I also think there's going to be costs around well-being, uh, physical health, um, how it affects personal relationships. because if we don't have that touch, we, you know, it's, it's, we're losing some key dimensions of, you know, sensory. I'm just curious about it. Um, The other thing that screams to me is uh, inequity. So when people talk about the future of work, Oculus, not many people are going to afford that. Not many organizations are going to be able to purchase that at scale for each and every employee. So the future, I think, is really exciting for some. Mm-hmm. I think for others, it could perpetuate inequity and inefficiencies and the ability, frankly, to you know get things done. So I'm very interested personally in helping create a more equitable future. I don't know what that looks like. I just know, and there's obviously trends in the macro economy, uh, not only here in the United States, but around the world that are pointing to a, a more inequitable future, which which scares me. So uh, I don't have the solve. I, I don't know if anyone you know does. I just it's just a call out, you know, at this point. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean the metaverse is. I, I I can't even believe that we're actually talking about it. Like right. it's a serious thing, <laughs> but it is. It, you know, it is. It's kind of here in some already, uh, but you know, at scale. So uh, I mean, it, it's going to be pervasive. So homework. If I can, might be so bold as to offer it, is Ready Player One speaks to this inequity uh, a little bit and uh, social dynamics, which is really where I was sad about the movie um, that it just kind of bailed on that whole whole thing. So I'd be interested to follow up with you. Maybe we'll have a public discussion yeah, on, 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 on that. So, sure. if, you know, so as we start to wrap here, um, yeah, any other things that you'd like to add, uh, you know, about the future of work, brave new work or anything else you got going on? Um, I mean, the only thing I would say, because we've, we've talked a lot about systems and we've talked a lot about leaders and we've talked about, you know, employees advocating and making change. The thing I always tell people, and so hopefully I can leave your listeners with this because, because what I hear a lot is like, yeah, and also like someone should do that. (laughs) And, uh, so, so the thing that I always tell people is like, start where you are and start with what you can control. 
And all of us can control more about our day and more about our work than we think we can. We all feel like there's an overlord that's looking at every single second of our work. And the truth is, like, they're just not. And so the question is, like, you know, what can you do? What is the experiment that you can run yourself in terms of changing a meeting type or changing using a Kanban board or trying a different piece of technology or you know, look, doing, a, doing a reflection of your calendar on Friday to see how much time you spent on the most important things. Don't, if you want to change the way of working and you want to change the way work is, don't start with trying to convince someone else to do it. Start with what you can do and what you can control. And then to your point, tell the story of that. Share what's working for you. Because what I find is like these things spread virally. Things that work tend to spread. And so I'm not a fan of starting with advocacy. I'm a fan of starting with experimentation and then anecdotes. And I, I absolutely love that. I, I absolutely love that. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, you might have set a record on how many times I've said it. I absolutely love that. <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it is, we do have to take personal responsibility. We do have to do things differently and, You'll call it work hacks, life hacks, you know, whatever you want to call it. You know, it's continuous iteration. The fact that, you know, the idea that we're going to get into a steady state and everything's going to be hunky-dory is not a realistic expectation. And you're highlighting that. We have to constantly iterate and shift and try new things. And, you know, one technology might be great for you for, you know, a few months and then it might, you know, fall out of favor. And, you know, as long as you kind of recalibrate and get back on, you know, maybe something different, maybe the same thing, that's all fine and good. But to your point, ultimately, it's personal ownership of how you're spending your time. This notion of temporal intelligence, the wise use of time. So yeah, absolutely celebrate that, you know, celebrate you. And uh, so as we wrap, any final, uh, you know, thoughts? How can people learn more about you and what you're up to? Uh, sure. You can check out theready.com or uh, listen or subscribe to Brave New Work wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Rodney, thank you for being here. Super appreciate you and congratulations on all you've achieved and uh, look forward to talking and listening uh, to you in the near future. You be Thanks. well, yeah? Thanks so much for having me, Al. This was awesome. Right. Pleasure. See ya. Thank you for listening today. To learn more about the People Analytics and Future of Work community, the People Data for Good movement, and to contribute to the ongoing production of podcasts and shows that enable you to stay at the forefront of people analytics, workforce planning, diversity, equity, and inclusion, employee experience, and other themes that are affecting the future of work, then please visit kafal.net. Again, thanks for being here and to making great things happen.